am 840 here. Uh, I am not proud of what I'm, I'm going to share with you, but I feel like we've established such a, a close relationship that I can open up and I can tell you where I've fallen short. Like if I fall off the wagon, right, I, I feel that we have built this container. Right, this is this is a safe place for, for both of us to share. And if I fall off the wagon, I can tell you. And I got to tell you now, I've been experiencing so much anxiety about Joe Biden installing fascism in the United States. I was listening to Tucker Carlson last night. Apparently, Joe Biden's just going to crush his opponents and install fascism in the United States, that there's going to be a Department of Truth at Homeland Security. We're no longer going to have the First Amendment. I mean, Tucker Carlson's got me so worked up. I'm feeling so much anxiety and insecurity and fear. Like everything that I held sacred is just tumbling down all around me. And so I, I spent the whole day acting out on Tinder. Not proud of this whatsoever. I, I mean, I, I met a wonderful 18-year-old girl, very mature for her age, just just lives lives a mile away. And I feel like today we went through like all the sturm and drag and intensity of, of a like a 30-year relationship, but we just packed it into one day. And I got to admit, I was a little bit compulsive. I wasn't always the, the courtly Victorian gentleman that you've, you've come to expect. And, and after, after the ups and downs of this relationship, I've, I've come to a conclusion. And it's a conclusion that I feel like I can best express to you, not through interpretive dance. I know you say, oh, 40, he's about to erupt into an interpretive dance to express out fascism in the United States. But no, not through interpretive dance. It's a unique musical composition that I have composed right, for the didgeridoo, and it's called Loving You Isn't the Right Thing to Do. So this is, comes from a very vulnerable part of myself. Uh, thank you for receiving this offering that I am presenting to you in, in the spirit in which it's intended. Okay, here we go. Loving you isn't the right thing to do. Wow, wow. And then I, I I met my friend's wife on Tinder today, and that was awkward. Whew. And so the, the only way that I really know how to deal with my feelings about that awkwardness is to write them out in musical form. So this is a special composition for the didgeridoo. It's called Loving You Really Isn't the Right Thing to Do. Wow. And then there was that, that, that young woman who I don't believe that she's even legally allowed to be on Tinder. Like I, I, something's wrong there. And I mean, I did, I didn't break the law. God forbid. I didn't break God's law, natural law or, or the law of the state. But when I think back on it, and if these messages come to light, then the only way that I really have to express my feelings about this awkward situation is to express them in a silly little love song. So I, I've called this Loving You Really, Really Isn't the Right Thing to Do. I hope you appreciate it.
Oh man, I feel so much better now. I just, I just had to get that off my chest because I've just been freaking out and acting out on Tinder. And frankly, it's, it's all Tucker Carlson's fault, man. Right. And, and this, this video is titled, and I think he's absolutely right. This is the point where we have to draw the line. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. When Elon Musk first announced that he was buying Twitter, it was pretty obvious the Democratic Party would soon become unhinged, not just angry or annoyed in the way you're very used to, but instead legitimately terrified and hysterical. Imagine how you'd feel if an armed intruder broke into your home at three in the morning. You couldn't exactly know where things were going, but you'd be dead certain that everything was at stake. That's how Democrats feel right now, because, in fact, everything is at stake. Joe Biden cannot continue to control this country. Wow, you can see why I'm so anxious, guys. This, this is why I've been acting out on Tinder. I mean, everything is at stake. Did you get that? Everything is at stake. If you have free access to information, it's that simple. Biden certainly is not improving your life. He's not even trying to improve your life. So the best he can do is lie to you and demand that you believe it. But to do that, he needs to make certain that nobody else can talk. Because if you were to hear the truth, you might not obey. How is Biden going to pull that off? It's not easy. Well, one option would be to get men with guns to tell you to shut up. Most Americans probably haven't thought of that because this isn't Africa or Eastern Europe. This is America. And we don't do things like that here and never have. More precisely, we haven't until now. But now Joe Biden is president and everything is different. So today, to herald the coming of the new Soviet America, Eastern the administration Europe, announced America. its own ministry everything of truth. This will be called the Disinformation Governance Board. Laugh if you want, but just to show you they're not kidding Whoa. around here. This, this board is, is not part of the State Department or any other agency Whoa. focused on foreign threats from abroad. No. The Disinformation Governance Board is part of the Department of Homeland Security. DHS is a law enforcement agency designed to police the United States and, and that, by the way, has a famously large stockpile of ammunition. So it's not a joke at all. Here's DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We have just established a um, wow. Disinformation Governance Board in the Department of Homeland Security to more effectively um, combat wow. uh, this threat, not only to election wow. security, uh, but to our homeland security. Oh. See, I've been freaking out, guys. Our homeland security is at risk. I mean, no wonder that I've been acting out. So one of America's top law enforcement officers just announced this to the Congress that actually we're going to be policing what you say, and everyone in the room kind of nods. Oh, yeah, it's totally normal. But here's what he didn't say. So America's told us that disinformation is a threat to homeland security. Now, he's the head of the Department of Homeland Security, so presumably he would know since assessing threats to homeland security is Whoa. his job. But what he didn't tell us is how he's defining disinformation. So here you have this new and terrifying thing that the Biden administration is so concerned about that it's created a new agency to fight it. But Mayorkas never said or even hinted as to what it might be. So the man in charge of the disinformation governing board never defined disinformation. Oh, no. It's almost unbelievable when you think about it. This Would you is declare war on a country you couldn't name? Would you sentence someone to death for a crime you couldn't? Well, see, you wouldn't you wouldn't get this kind of perspective anywhere else. But on Tucker Carlson, man, everything is at stake here. Describe. Of course, you wouldn't. Not if you were a sane and decent person, because you can't have justice without precise definitions. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. That's why we have very large books of law that define what is allowed and what is not. But they're not defining the core concept at the heart of what is effectively a new law enforcement agency. Well, and that's because Mayorkas doesn't want justice, and neither does the president he serves. They want power. No and justice. to get power, they plan to control what you think. Watch Mayorkas oh, no. We have so many different efforts underway to Gosh. equip local communities uh, to identify individuals who very well 
could be descending into violence uh, by oh, reason yeah. of ideologies of hate, false oh. narratives, or, or other um, disinformation and misinformation propagated oh. on social media and other platforms. Wow. Oh. Did you know that? This so, so one of our scary. biggest law enforcement agencies has men with guns oh around the country God. doing so many things oh, no. to stop disinformation and false narratives. Those aren't oh, even lies. No. They're just deviations from the approved script. America's told us. Why would they leave our free speech alone, guys? Why would they leave the First Amendment alone? Why would they leave our thinking alone, guys? Leave our freedoms alone again that men with guns plan to quote identify individuals who could be descending into violence could be descending not people who've committed violence or even been accused of any crime at all dhs is instead using law enforcement powers to identify and punish people who think the wrong things that would be opponents of the biden administration is this dystopian fiction no it's happening right in front of us that means that joe biden's partisan whoa it, this is a dystopian fiction guys this is happening right in front of us Right, Joe Biden is planning to punish thought crimes. How scary is that? No wonder an otherwise sane, sober bloke like me has been acting out on Tinder. Political enemies are now officially enemies of the state. It was a rational response. How is this happening in America? Good question, but it is Whoa. happening. And Biden's new thought cop in chief has been revealed. He's a 33-year-old, highly self-confident young woman called Nina Jankowitz. Whoa, how scary is that? She's our, she's our thought cop in chief, man. We've got a thought cop. Whoa. Just looking at her, and I just get so frightened, I want to get back on the Tinder. Jankowitz comes from a place called the Wilson Center. That's a nonprofit named for America's other mentally incapacitated warmonger bigot president. Ironically, because everything is irony, the Wilson Center is itself a major producer of, yes, disinformation, but of the neocon variety, oh. and for that reason is heavily funded by the Biden administration. Oh, no. Jankowitz is also, because everything is connected, a former advisor to the neoliberal government of Ukraine, the government... Wow, Tucker Carlson's a mystic. He sees how everything is connected, man. Wow, we're battling some dark, dark forces out there, right? But, but be of good cheer, like, have courage. The world's coming to an end, but have courage and be of good cheer as we fight these dark forces of evil. We're shipping tens of billions of tax dollars to as our own economy swirls down the drain. Oh, no. So you really can't make any of this up. It's too grotesque. Whoa. Would you believe a novel Oof. with this plot? No, you wouldn't. Gosh. But it's happening. And that's the bad news. Oof. The good news is everyone involved in Joe Biden's new Ministry of Information is a buffoon. Oh, they may be evil, God. but they're also ridiculous. Mina Jankowitz is the most ridiculous of all. So you read about her appointment in the Washington Post this morning and you immediately thought of the NKVD, because why wouldn't you? Right. Yet even the NKVD, even at the height of Stalin's purges, never did karaoke. They were too dignified for that. But Nina Jankowitz happily does. Here she is. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little, hide a lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo when we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh. Wow, this is the point of show good. where they say we're kidding, we're making all of this up. It's not really happening in the country you were born in, but it is happening. That's now a law enforcement official. It's also the person you just saw, an individual who brags Scary. about getting a master's degree from Georgetown University. In case you were wondering if the entire academic credentialing machine that sustains America's ruling class is in fact a joke. Spoiler alert, yes, it is a joke. Wow. This is somebody with so few useful skills that she describes herself in the first words of her own bio as a, quote, internationally recognized expert on disinformation. 
is if that's a job Scary. of some sort. Imagine if one of your kids grew up to be an internationally recognized expert on disinformation. The shame you would feel, mm. the pain of knowing that truly mm. and unequivocally you had failed as a parent. After all, right. all those years of advanced education, Nina Jankowitz became an internationally recognized expert on disinformation. And not only that, she can't even rhyme very well. What Nina Jankowitz can do, her one skill, the purpose for which she was hired, is level partisan attacks on the other side with maximum ferocity. That is her real job. Now, you may have noticed, if you listen carefully to the Diddy that she just sang, that every example of disinformation in her karaoke performance came from people who opposed Joe Biden's policies. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> Probably not. Mm. In fact, we know it's not, because Nina Jankowitz is telling all the disinformation is on the other side of the political... Wow, this is so scary, and... Thank God for senators like Josh Hawley, who are speaking out against the, the, the imposition of, of, of fascism in America. I, they told me that fascism would come from the right, but uh, it, that, that doesn't seem to be true, man. Right? Fascism, who would have thought it's coming from the left? All right? Uh, Josh Hawley released a statement, thank God. He says, this is dangerous and un-American. The, the disinformation board should be immediately dissolved. So Jack Schaefer's got a good column here in Politico. The idea that the Biden administration would pulp the First Amendment and institute an authoritarian regime through its agents at Department of Homeland Security, DHS, is immediately dismissible, if only because it is one of the most ineffectual departments in the president's cabinet. Had Biden given the task to agricultural commerce or another department with a better GPA in governing, we should be afraid. But DHS couldn't stamp out disinformation or erect an American Reich. We reallocated to it all of the arms we're currently shipping to Ukraine. It's peopled by a confederacy of dunces and botch artists incapable of carrying out its current mission. For instance, DHS shrugged off the January 6th warning signs. It failed to share intelligence about the wave of Haitian immigrants who breached the border in 2021. Based on their track record, DHS will surely miss any treacherous disinformation the Ruskies ship our way. Department is so riddled with copycat programs that duplicate duties handled by other federal agencies that uh, probably should be abolished. Senator Bob, former Senator Barbara Boxer wrote an op-ed regretting having midwifed this department through with her Senate vote. Now, who thinks the government should add to its work list the job of determining what is true and what is disinformation? And who thinks the government is capable of telling the truth? All right. Our government uh, doesn't have necessarily the greatest track record in this area, right? Our government has consistently produced lies and disinformation at an industrial scale and interfered in other democracies. It overclassifies vital information to block its own citizens from becoming any the wiser. It pays thousands of press aides to play hide the salami with facts. Right? This is the government that lies about winning the war in Vietnam, about winning the war in Iraq, said that Watergate was a third-rate burglary, that fought a secret war in Nicaragua, lied about a clandestine love affair in the White House that used faulty intelligence to force a war in the Middle East. Barack Obama shortchanged the truth. Of 600 Obama statements, plenty of fact-checked during his administration. A quarter of them fell into the scary red zone of being false. Pants on fire, level false. So not so long ago, 50 intelligence officials, Right each of them smarter and better informed than any DHS brainiac, assured the nation that the Hunter Biden laptop story bore all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Starline says, Luke, did you know that Tucker Carlson was close with Dennis Hoff? No, I did not. 
but uh, Dennis Hoff was a patriotic American. So how did that work out regarding Hunter Biden? So the idea that COVID could have come from a Chinese lab was similarly dismissed as disinformation. That was considered a legitimate possibility by the Biden administration. And we have documented proof from the Washington Post that even Joe Biden can't handle simple truths. So making the federal government the official custodian of truth is like giving Brinks a, a safe cracker, uh, uh, like giving Brinks giving a safe cracker a job at driving an armored car. So who's going to accept DHS determinations? Not reporters who are accustomed to government lies, not the man in the street. Right? If Russian disinformation is a major problem in our country, it's been so for a century. Right? Law Russians started sending out false, fake defectors in the 1930s to spread disinformation in the West. After World War II, Soviet leadership sought to influence American public opinion by covertly funding newspapers and radio stations in America and around the world and establishing fronts to nurture communism and forge documents attached with to plant them in credible publications. Somehow we survived the Soviet onslaught without a disinformation government board to guide us. So not every particle of disinformation can be blocked, but by installing a truth Politburo at DHES, maybe the government should leave the job of policing disinformation to the competitive organs of the YouTube live streamer and the news media who compete to obtain the earliest and most correct Nation, as Times of London editor put it in 1852. He was thinking about YouTube live streamers. So if DHES so badly needs a paperwork project, it can address a problem closer to home, set up a bureau to study and eradicate U.S. government disinformation. Cool divide. Listen. Most of the disinformation that we've seen, this highly emotionally manipulative content, is coming from the right. If you look at the top 10 you know, most engaged with posts on Facebook or Twitter on a given day, uh, they are usually posts that are coming from the right. And that's because the right does deal in this highly emotional rhetoric. <laughs> You'd have to live in a self-awareness-free vacuum. You might even have to go to Georgetown University to utter a sentence like that. The right deals in this highly emotional rhetoric, <laughs> says Nina Jankowitz. Now, it's worth noting here, because we can't resist, that this very same Nina Jankowitz once wrote an entire book about how women can't use the Internet because it's just too upsetting for them. They're too fragile to read words they disagree with. It makes them faint. Here's a direct quote from Nina Jankowitz's book. Quote, to be a woman online is an inherently dangerous act. <laughs> Keep in mind, if you're a lady and you were to... Wait, wait, Tucker Carlson's laughing, but he, he hasn't seen how I've been conducting myself on Tinder today. I mean, being on Tinder with 40 on the hunt, you know, acting out with all his anxiety about Biden imposing fascism. Very dangerous place for women. Uh, I don't know, order Uber Eats? You're exposing yourself to danger. This is the same woman, Nina Jankowitz, telling you that it's the right that uses emotional rhetoric. <laughs> now, to be fair, Nina Jankowitz probably didn't expect a lot of people to read that in her book because no one read her book. It has a total of two reviews on Amazon. But we did read it. We'll get in a moment to what we found because it tells you exactly what we can expect from our new Ministry of Truth under Nina Jankowitz. But first, it's necessary to know a little more about this person. Now, she's not simply a hypocrite. She obviously is, whether she knows it or not. She would be too dim to understand hypocrisy. What she really is, of course, is a heavy for the Democratic Party, and she's done that job flawlessly. Nina Jankowitz, the disinformation hunter, once called the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is entirely true, a, quote, Trump campaign product. In October of 2020, she wrote, quote, voters deserve the context, not a fairy tale about a laptop repair shop. Now, did she give us the context or any countervailing facts? Did she deliver the truth about that story? No, of course not. 
She just read a bunch of lies somebody handed to her on a card because she's a useful idiot. And now she's a law enforcement official. Nina Jankowicz is repeating a lie that was, of course, widespread on the eve of the presidential election. And when she repeated it, it made it possible for Joe Biden to repeat it on the debate stage during a presidential debate. In case you've forgotten, here he is. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly it. what, is this that's where exactly what this is where Okay, just to be clear, this is a nightmare unfolding in slow motion, but this is the point where we're just going to have to draw the line. No, Joe Biden, you can't have a federally funded Ministry of Truth. And no, Nina Jankowicz can't run it. Period. It's not your country. You're not even Compass Menace. And you don't get to do this to a free people. Period. Oh, scary. This is, this is where we have to draw the line. So Stephen Turner, my favorite academic these days, he's uh, preparing a talk on curation, the digital world of manipulated experience. And, and he's going to begin his talk with a quote from Barack Obama where Barack Obama went to Silicon Valley and said, it's relevant to our democracy, to our citizenship. We're, we're going to have to rebuild within this wild, wild west of information flow, some sort of curating function that people agree to. So I remember when I started blogging every day on the porn industry, the, the establishment meant uh, adult video news. It was the trade publication of the pornography industry. And adult video news was always decrying the wild, wild west of the internet and how the days of the wild, wild west of the internet were coming to an end and we need something more responsible. We have to crack down on disinformation about porn stars and uh, pornographers because it's, it's a threat to our democracy and it is, it is setting the, the ground for fascism and authoritarian rule. So what the hell is curation? So it's basically a form of censorship. That's what the left once that's what many people in the center want and even the center right right it, curation has a propaganda intent it is a form of subconscious manipulation right? what uh, vance packard in the 1950s called hidden hidden persuasion now it wants to limit information so that we create a common world of fact that is common to most people and, and this will create an actual agreement and it will reduce polarization, right? This will save our democracy, guys. We need, we need censorship and propaganda to save our democracy. But don't call it censorship. Don't call it propaganda. Call it curation, all right? So this is going to save our democracy from, from polarization, which leads to authoritarianism. So polarization is when people speak freely and see the world differently. And apparently, according to our ruling elites this this kind of polarization it leads to authoritarianism to to fascism right so polarization is driven by claims that are bigoted right they may be true but they're bigoted uh, by by violations of norms of discourse right if you violate norms of discourse guys that's authoritarian right this is a whole new completely you know untested unproven made-up definition of authoritarian, right? To to engage in bigoted or, you know, uncouth discourse. I mean, we don't do any of that here, right? We've got a very strict terms of service, so we, we try to stay away from being authoritarian here. Now, 
this curation model is never clearly articulated, right? Uh, Nina, that Nina J person and the DHES uh, truth panel, they never clearly articulate what they're doing, but it's taken for granted by, by our betters that uh, we, can't, we can't put up with the wild, wild west online where people can just have their say, right? We need informational inputs, right? We need, we need to actively curate what the kind of opinions that people hear. Otherwise, polarizing disinformation just flourishes and leads to authoritarianism. But uh, who decides what is information and what is disinformation? Right? Who decides what is a fact? I mean, much of what is presented in science journals, especially medicine, does not live up to standards of evidentiary quality. Pharmaceutical industry funding leads to obvious biases. The, the regulators for the pharmaceutical industry are often just bought off. The whole funding system of science influences the content of science and its consensus. Journalism is also prone to ideological selectivity and bias. So this idea that there will be a neutral agreement on what is disinformation is nonsense at best and sinister at worst. So the theory is if we simply eliminate false claims or non-facts that everything's going to go much, much better. So in this speech, Obama said 40 years ago, if you were a conservative in rural Texas, you weren't necessarily offended by what was going on in San Francisco's Castro district because you didn't know what was going on. See, they want to return to the days where people don't really know what's going on to protect our democracy, right? Is democracy, is this? Notice they're always talking about our democracy. It's kind of an odd formulation, our democracy. Why append the possessive? It's because those responsible for our governing consensus are exasperated by an increasingly indocile and intractable public that will not accept their authority, reading from American thinkers. So whose democracy is this anywhere? So we've got all these extremism experts warning that the Capitol riots on January 6th proved the most urgent threat to American safety and security isn't coming from foreign terrorists from, from our country's own citizens. Well, that seems pretty silly now that we're you know, getting closer and closer to a war with Russia. And she's alarmed that the average age of the January 6th rioters was around 40, that they were representative of the American middle class. Because government's counterterrorism infrastructure is built to focus on fringe extremists, not from those from the mainstream. Right? So we've got mainstream threats to democracy. Right? The people. The people are now a threat to our democracy and our meaning the elite interpretation of democracy, which is not democracy, it is ruled by experts. So whatever democracy means for these people, it's clearly not rule of the people. So she thinks that uh, disinformation and this misguided mainstream thinking is a public health threat, and America needs to adopt the ambitious holistic approach of other nations who are far ahead of the United States tamping down mainstream extremism. So if it's mainstream, how can it be extremism? So she wants a social control apparatus comprising our security services, intelligence services, the ministries of education, labor, health, human services, youth and family, social services, culture, and the arts, with decision-making authority granted to experts in education, social work, and mental health to build democratic resilience in the mainstream, right? The mainstream, the, the extremists, the, the citizens, so that people are more likely to recognize and resist propaganda, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. So 
threats to public health, right? We need an authoritarian response to threats to public health to protect our democracy, right? And we now have all these education experts who believe that parental rights end when children are enrolled in public school. We've got experts on school boards conspiring with the Department of Justice to target parents as domestic terrorists. We've got reliably left-wing members of the helping professions taking children away from parents who refuse to consent to their child's gender transition treatments or to agree that their daughter is really a boy. So DHS is now focusing on domestic threat actors, meaning American citizens, mainstream American citizens. So DHS now has a new bottom line, stopping the flow of MDM. Sounds like a drug. MDM stands for Miss, Dis, and Malinformation. And what counts as Miss, Dis, and Malinformation? Misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread electoral fraud and COVID-19. So anything harmful to the regime is now malinformation. So the proximate cause of the January 6th Capitol riot was a vast undercurrent of wrong think flooding the internet. The, these riots come from disinformation, guys. The real world consequence of Americans clicking their way through an... Period. This can't happen. And what is this? Well, if you want to know what's going to happen, look at what just did happen. So Nina Jankowitz made it possible for a presidential candidate to lie from the debate stage about a story that may have changed the outcome of elections. Our election, our presidential election, speaking of disinformation, she's never apologized for that. That's because her role has nothing to do with the truth or stopping disinformation. Her job is to restrict any speech that challenges Joe Biden or the Democratic Party. Now, you'd think that would be illegal in this country as a federal employee because we do have a First Amendment. But Nina Jankowitz doesn't believe in the First Amendment. As she wrote recently, quote, the free speech versus censorship framing is a false dichotomy. <laughs> First of all, here's a pro tip. Anyone who uses the term false dichotomy is a moron, okay? That is one of countless academic phrases designed to prevent thought rather than facilitate it. False dichotomy means they're never going to have to explain why their position is correct or yours is wrong. It is So the term authoritarian is particularly inapt, right? So this curation strategy is a behavioral intervention. It's a way of manipulating the external environment to try to produce change without us consciously consenting or without directly coercing us. So the, the intervention is a nudge, right? But the, the nudge is precisely brought about by authority. So the ordinary bloke who accepts the news as true, who accepts the authority of experts, the authority of the state in defining reality, and the authority of schools, right? These people already accept authority. They don't require an intervention. So the whole target of this curation intervention are people who reject or are suspicious of authority. And so are vulnerable to disinformation, malinformation, or non-standard sources of meaning. Right? We need to restrict the available choices in news, in experts, and in schools so that people operate from a curated sample of information and they don't receive information from unapproved sources. So I remember when I was breaking news month after month about HIV cases in the porn industry, all these porn stars and pornographers and porn lawyers would stand up and say, please, please, people, get your information from trusted sources within the industry. 
right? Don't get it from bloggers who are just bent on tearing us down. You know, wait till you hear about things from the Free Speech Coalition, the pornographers' lobbying group. So who decides who gets to curate, right? Obama speaks of an agreement, but it's not an agreement between polarized sides. It's not even explicit argument by which one overcomes polarization by curation. His audience is tech executives who share his politics. So the kind of control that is envisioned by this crowd is not the kind that can be codified in law or explicitly justified. It depends on constant revision by the enforcers and fuzzy language about what they're doing. So this agreement on the new norms pre-exists tacitly, right? Once it's made explicit rather than tacit, people will rebel. So you need to hide that which triggers polarization, like all sorts of inconvenient truths. And, and we need to hide all that which shows a lack of deference to the correct authorities, right? But this doesn't work if the manipulation is not opaque. But without agreement in a democratic sense of this curation operation, the result is a mere imposition by a people other than the people of the United States, right? It's an imposition by experts as against the people, right? So algorithms, rules, laws governing speech online are enforced by people exercising political judgments. So the, the best analogy to this is perhaps the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union tried to reform the thought processes of tens of millions of people by changing norms of public discourse. And the effects were profound, and some people adhered fanatically to the new order, but not everyone was transformed. And overall, the propaganda didn't work very much. People revert back to personal experience. So we did not evolve to be gullible, and we did not evolve to just accept arguments that people present to us without critically evaluating them. So we did not evolve to think critically about our own positions, but we did evolve to think critically about other people. So it helps if we go through life with some confidence in ourselves. So we don't tend to be particularly good at picking up our own shortcomings in our intellectual life, but we tend to be pretty good at picking up the ludicrous arguments of others. Dismissed with, oh, it's a false dichotomy. Again, that's an NPR phrase used by low IQ people who for some reason run our country all of a sudden. False dichotomy. Here's what's not false at all. Government censorship is banned by the First Amendment. The First Amendment is the Bill of Rights. This whole country is predicated on that. But according to Joe Biden's new Minister of Truth, the First Amendment no longer applies in this country because Russia and systemic racism. Watch. It's clear that actors like Russia are using those internal fissures, things like our systemic racism here in the United States, things like economic inequality, to amplify uh, these issues and, and really make us distrust the system. So we reach out to DHS, the law enforcement agency now in charge of policing speech, about Nina Jankowitz and her plans. Okay, so good news, right? We've definitely got a problem, but there is a solution out there, right? Richard Spencer announces on his substack, Alex University our new initiative in education. So it's an online education program for independent students and scholars, starting off modestly two courses in June, one taught by Ed Dutton, one taught by Richard Spencer. Going forward, Alex University will be a central focus of Richard Spencer's energy. So the first of the seminars are on Nietzsche's political theology, which will be taught by Richard. And the other course will be on evolutionary psychology 
taught by Edward Dutton. Additional courses will be taught by Mark Brahman. Courses will take place over Zoom. It will last four to five weeks with two-hour sessions on Sunday. So Alex is named after the Library of Alexandria, found in the 1st or 2nd centuries BC, the crown jewel of the ancient world. Today we live in a sort of digital Alexandria, which an almost infinite store of information is at hand. Okay, Alex University to the rescue. Right, I've been reading a lot from Stephen Turner these days. Here is dense democratic uh, theory. Expression against one party or another, and um, it this system of these auxiliary measures are easily seen as an obstacle in real or imagined emergencies. So freedom of speech looks like if we're in a war situation, uh, this is a problem that people are running around saying things that are hostile to the, the war effort, and therefore we have to uh, um, get rid of. It. However, and and it also needs. Something like no freedom for the enemies of freedom. Consensus, or at least consensus on the rules of the game, on what people's rights are, and so on. And this consensus is pretty easy to erode. Um, and um, the consensus isn't really neutral. It's got some value content, but we have to treat it as neutral. We have to treat it as non-political and not really subject to uh, um, dispute. Um, so that makes all of those things fragile. But liberal democracy can be really resilient if a few things happen. And uh, my, my pet example of this is, uh, uh, and, and this is why it's so resilient. Any arrangement, any state arrangement, uh, creates interest in preserving that arrangement. Somebody benefits from it. And uh, uh, then the political parties cater to the, that interest, even if it's just an accidental consequence of something. Um, and it can also change to cater to new interests or create new interests. So it's flexible in uh, creating, uh, allowing people, politicians, and actually incentivizing politicians to um, uh, create support for the system. Okay, so I've been reading another book by Stephen Turner. This one came out, I think, in 2018. It's called The Politics of Expertise. So he talks about climate science is the field that is the most visible example today of a policy-oriented science field that is tightly coupled with funding. So there was a Spencer Wirt, 2003, who wrote A History of Climate Science. And it's essentially a defense of the scientific credentials of the field and its legitimacy as a science. So he describes the slow development of climate science starting out as loosely coupled science. So there was money to pursue key ideas such as the study of the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere. That money was scarce. Interested scientists were able to do research on these topics only more or less by accident. There was generous military funding of science in the 1950s and geophysical research is usually platform science. It requires big platforms, big instruments, which in turn require extensive lobbying by researchers to acquire. So only when the public spheres are aroused and the conservation movement picks up on the great pressing problem of global warming, does the money begin to flow freely. Now, is the money going to keep flowing freely if you say, oh, not such a big deal, guys. Climate change is not really a big deal. No, you're only going to get money if you can package climate change as alarming. So climate modeling is at the core of the study of global warming. And the materials that go into climate models come from a wide variety of scientific fields. So the climate prediction outputs of these models are sensitive to what assumptions, parameters, variations, inputs, right? 
So there's a long history of failure to make even plausible predictions. There were models that predicted that a doubling of CO2 would produce a rise in global temperatures of 10 degrees centigrade or higher. There was the fiasco that predicted new ice age. So these early models were wildly wrong. But at the time, they were presented as serious policy predictions by scientists such as Steven Schneider, who's still active and still aggressively promoting the policy relevance of their current views. So Spencer Wirt has, has a Whiggish theory of history that things are getting better and better and that these science models, all right, they're just like other scientific models. They begin with flawed theories, which prompt people to make better ones. So he treats the fact that a simple calculation could produce catastrophic outcomes as a disturbing discovery. So aggregating climate knowledge was a problem that was not matched by the controlling social structure of the discipline, as was the case with normal science. Climate science operates under a different structure. So climate is a staggeringly intricate complex of interactions and feedbacks among many global forces. Even relatively simple phenomena such as the doldrums in the tropical seas defy explanation. So Spencer Work concedes the field does not operate as a normal scientific discipline. Social structure is not cohesive. Community in one specialty cannot check the work of researchers in another specialty. They must accept their word for what is valid. The study of climate change is an extreme example. Researchers cannot isolate meteorology from solar physics, pollution studies from computer science, oceanography from glacier ice chemistry, and so forth. The range of journals they cite is remarkably broad. The sprawl is inevitable, but the complexity imposes difficulty on those who try to reach solid conclusions about climate change. So these climate change models rely on ad hoc devices. Ad hoc means essentially made up. They fit the actual climate roughly only because they've been laboriously tuned to match it by adjusting a wide variety of arbitrary parameters. And what keeps the field going is generating money, right? That is entwined with politics all throughout. So you've got self-interest, emotional commitment, desire to feel important, and the political cause of promoting action on the problem just happened to coincide with all of this. So you've got these abnormalities to the classical model for science, but they're justifiable, according to Spence Wirt, on the grounds of time, right? We're, we're running out of time, guys. In the case of climate, waiting for a sure answer would mean waiting forever. When we're faced with a new disease or an armed invasion, we do not put off decisions until more research is done. We act using the best guidelines available. Right, so this is the language of the uh, climate, big climate, climate commissions, right? We don't have ordinary disciplinary control. So come on, guys, we must accept the claims of climate science on other grounds rather than science. So what's the correctness of the dominant views in climate science? Science, well, they rest on Spencer Wirt's feelings for where scientific claims are reliable and where they are shaky. His belief that the few who contest the facts are either ignorant or so committed to their viewpoints that they will seize on any excuse to deny the danger. And he closes the book with his own policy recommendations. This is the final sentence. The spirit of fact-gathering, rational discourse, tolerance of dissent, and negotiation of an evolving consensus which has characterized the climate science community can serve well as a model. Did you know that these are the features of the climate science community that we should be replicating in the domain of policy? 
and they provide an alternative ground for trust in climate science's conclusions. Now, this characterization of the climate science community has been shown to be false in every respect as a result of the 20, is it 2011 release of emails from the University of East Anglia's Climatic Research Unit, an institution that Spencer Work praised. So the facts were mishandled and suppressed. Data was withheld and lost. Peer review was manipulated. Major effort was made to discredit those who questioned the consensus. All right, so in 2011, academic Evelyn Fox Keller asked, what are climate scientists to do? So her concern is that people are skeptical about the claim that climate scientists present as authoritative science. So she says, come on, guys, the expertise is strong. The expert consensus is strong. The opponents of what we're doing are paid off. They're acting on behalf of special interests. The policymakers and politicians should just accept the science and act accordingly. The problem is they are not doing so. So what should the strategy of climate scientists be in the face of reluctance to accept the results of science? So this goes to the heart of the question of the role of expertise in a democratic society, particularly in a liberal democratic society where public discussion matters. But we're not allowed to publicly discuss climate science in any skeptical way. You get uh, removed from the public square if you do that. So in recent years, scientists and activists have been operating from this perspective. Politicians should defer to the scientific experts. We've we got to remove climate change from the realm of politics and put it into the realm of neutralization and give dominion over these matters to experts outside of political accountability. So come on, guys, scientific consensus is either truth or the best approximation to truth that is available. So politicians and the public just are in no position to assess the validity of the claims made in the consensus and therefore should not do so. So if politicians do not accept the consensus, they are endangering the earth. And the whole system of liberal democracy that allows them to do so needs to be abolished or radically reformed. You need to create new powers suppressing speech that is contrary to the scientific consensus. Come on, guys, you need to defer to the climate consensus. Right. We, we can't have each person deciding or assessing the credibility of the scientists and of science. Right. A claim about science as a collectivity or as a regime, that, that's what produces a consensus. So what's the justification for this? Why must climate science be treated with this kind of deference? Does climate science have features that make it less deserving of this kind of deference just asking questions folks just asking questions okay let me get back to more of this stimulating um my, my pet example of this is uh, freedom of speech so who was the great defender of freedom of speech nowadays well how have you moving up the pornography industry Wait, uh, where are my viewers robust defenses of freedom of speech because they're the ones that provide the lawyers for uh, all of those cases that come up uh, and uh, so why? So one uh, set of judicial decisions created a whole industry, and that industry has its interests and its, its, uh, has its political impact, and uh, it preserves the system, even though you would never think of pornography as a support of liberalism, but there it is. Uh, okay, so, uh, and then it also depends on not having totalizing uh, parties. This is kind of schmitty point. Uh, if parties have ideal interests or some sort of vision that's different, uh, and 
uh, also material interest. Wow, they thank God. They deliver some goods for their supporters, but are not either one exclusively. Um, you can have kinds of compromises in political discussion. Man, normally by this time in the show, I'd have like 10 viewers. But it's a Friday evening. I'm just down to five. But but each viewer is its own universe, right? So I'm still speaking to the universe. And I'm not just speaking to the person watching now. I am speaking to history, right? Th these words are going to echo down in history. On to page 287 of this terrific Stephen Turner book, The Politics of Expertise. And just like one, one, one Bernard Brightson in the chat is worth you know, 1,000 high school dropout skinheads to me. So competence, that's the question. So let's talk about the dismissal of Robert Oppenheimer and the decision to build the H-bomb, an idea promoted by Edward Teller. So this story involves gathering information, aggregating information, processing information, and applying information. Robert Oppenheimer was the father of the A-bomb, he was a revered physicist. He was a master scientific manager and the most authoritative voice on weapons questions anywhere. So after the use of the atomic bomb in 1945, he was concerned about the aftermath and he promoted the autonomy of science. He stressed the craft character of science, the distinction between science and technology and the need for atomic science to proceed in an open academic setting. He backed proposals for the internationalization of control over nuclear energy, and he represented the scientific community to decision makers. So what led to his fall? It was a central event in the developing relation of science to the state. In 1953, Robert Oppenheimer was accused of being, in all probability, an agent of the Soviet Union by the recently resigned executive director of the Joint Congressional Committee on Atomic Energy, William Borden. And so Oppenheimer's security clearance was stripped. Oppenheimer tried to clear his name. He appealed to the Atomic Energy Commission's Personal Personnel Security Board. The board heard and examined allegations that Oppenheimer had obstructed the development of the H-bomb. The evidence was scant. And in the end, Oppenheimer had been persuaded. In most respects, Oppenheimer seemed to have merely done what scientists normally do to resist novel approaches and imply informed skepticism to Teller's ideas. But what fatally undermined Robert Oppenheimer was the admission that he had lied in past security interviews. So this raised questions about his integrity. Now, integrity is not a particularly important concern for normal science. But in the new regime, integrity was an issue. Scientists were called upon not merely to accept or reject new ideas as individuals, but to exercise direct authority over the development of ideas. So in this context, skepticism and resistance, rather than being meritorious, well undermine the testing mechanism and the use of rivalry as a counterbalance to groupthink. So Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, was a classic example of scientists being prone to having hobby horses. So Teller was obsessed with the idea of thermonuclear energy since 1940. He honed his ideas through the Manhattan Project. So both Oppenheimer and Teller were acutely aware of the problems in continuing to get the benefits of the old regime under the bureaucratic conditions of the new regime. So Robert Oppenheimer was a master at the use of committees and in scientific discussions. He was persuasive, sharp, authoritative, and respected. Edward Teller emphasized the need for rivalry, promoted the idea of a second laboratory, preferably located at the university, but within the system of national laboratories to enable them to compete, to overcome the risk 
having research in an area governed by the set ideas of one lab and its bureaucracy. So the issue with Oppenheimer that underlay the accusations against him was that it was clear that many scientists objected to the development of the H-bomb on moral grounds and on political grounds. So scientists' moral scruples led them to make technical objections and to obstruct the development of the H-bomb. Their motivations were political and moral and technically faulty. So the separation of the technical and the moral and the scientific became an important firewall. Decision makers... Decision-making processes depended on the ability of decision-makers to rely on the technical advice, to rely on the experts, that they would be unbiased and disinterested. And that did not happen. It's characteristic of uh, liberal democracy. But if you don't have that, if you have totalizing parties, the system is going to break down because it's so fragile in the first place. Okay, so this is why liberalism uh, in these is, in a way, uh, anti-democratic. If democracy is ruled in accordance with the will of the people, but in this abstract sense that goes beyond the formal legal will that uh, Kelsen was interested in, um, these auxiliaries, these rights and procedures and so forth, get in the way of the, the people ruling in this uh, sovereign sense that... Uh, okay, so what the heck is happening in Ohio? Right. Let's talk about the decline of Ohio and the rise of J.D. Vance. Excellent essay here by Christopher Cordwell in the New York Times. So Christopher Cordwell is probably one of the top three most important conservative thinkers today. And he publishes regularly in the New York Times. And he starts off, we're going to have to break up the big tech companies. You have to do it. J.D. Vance hollers at a rally for Donald Trump in Ohio last weekend. Cannot have a real country if a bunch of corrupt scumbags take their marching orders from the communist Chinese, tell us what we're allowed to say and how we're allowed to say it. All right? This is J.D. Vance sounding a lot like Donald Trump. What the heck is going on here? So J.D. Vance is 37. He's a memoirist. He's a venture capitalist. He's running in the Republican Senate primary in Ohio. He's new to politics, but he's recently fortified by Donald Trump's endorsement. So J.D. Vance assailed Joe Biden as a crazy fake president who will buy energy from Putin, the scumbags of Venezuela, but won't buy it from middle-class Ohioans who live in a top fracking state. So scumbag is a word that seems to have entered Mr. Vance's public vocabulary only recently. It did not appear in his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, that tender 2016 autobiography that was made into a movie. So... Early on in 2016, J.D. Vance described Donald Trump as reprehensible and an idiot and didn't vote for him. But in 2020, J.D. Vance backed Donald Trump. Now Donald Trump is backing J.D. Vance, calling him a fearless MAGA fighter and a great Buckeye. And his J.D. Vance is calling Mr. Trump the best president of my lifetime. So what the heck is going on in Ohio? What's going on by with the hillbilly elegy author? So it's not so much that J.D. Vance has changed. It's that uh, the situation in Ohio has changed. Ohio has produced seven presidents. 
and has been an electoral bellwether. J.D. Vance is running against Josh Mandel, a Jewish Republican who's pretty MAGA himself. He said, I think illegal immigrants should be deported, meaning every single illegal. Now, J.D. Vance's successful route to Donald Trump's favor was subtle. To him, the core of the Trumpian project wasn't intra-party power struggles or demagogy. It was reconnecting politics to ordinary people. So J.D. Vance calls for breaking up the nation's cozy political system. So he says, what does it mean that six of the highest income zip codes in the United States are in metropolitan Washington? How do legislators get so rich on the relatively modest salaries they make? So J.D. Vance grasps, as Donald Trump grasps, the deep discontent with political correctness and the hunger for someone unafraid to stand up to it. So if there was a moment in J.D. Vance's campaign when his fortune seemed to turn, it was his release of a TV ad that began, Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. So there's a sense among Ohioans that they are being cast as bad people for wanting to limit immigration. And that J.D. Vance is willing to crack a joke about the term racist shows that he's relatively fearless. So Donald Trump Jr. campaigned with J.D. Vance in the week Donald endorsed him and drew a sharp contrast between J.D. Vance and other Republicans who crumble the moment the media falsely accuses them of being rapist, racist. <laughs> rapist and racist rapists. What's a racist rapist? Someone who, who only rapes non-black women. So, in contrast to the supply-side limited government free trade agenda, uh, in contrast to the Chamber of Commerce agenda, <laughs> in contrast to the China agenda, so J.D. Vance's aides called Josh Mandel's backers the club for Chinese growth. So J.D. Vance said, from the lot of other guys make is they think America first is a slogan or a talking point, but there is a substantial agenda behind it. That means trade policy, drug policy, securing the Mexican border, steering clear of unnecessary foreign wars. And many Republicans are unaware of how seriously Donald Trump takes those things. So the heart of this agenda is resistance to globalization. So if you want a one-word answer to why Mr. Trump has so rocked Ohio politics, it would be NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement of 1993, a symbol of institutional adjustments that have turned the United States from a manufacturing economy into a service economy. So free trade is not being particularly good for many Ohioans. So for a while, it was Democrats alone who voiced misgivings about globalization. Now it's more often to be rep Trumpist Republicans. So before Donald Trump's arrival on the scene, G.D. Vance's hillbillies didn't really fit into the prevailing political framework for helping the downtrodden. So G.D. Vance speaking on the campaign trail about his mother's been clean for seven years, how the fentanyl on today's streets might have killed her had she still been using. He denounces the nonstop violence, sex trafficking, and drugs at the Mexican border also the building of Donald Trump's wall. So it can be difficult, even disorienting, to think of Donald Trump 
as having provided certain Americans with recognition, a second chance, and a possibility of renewal, but he has. So politics that was unavailable has been made available. So yes, something has changed since J.D. Vance's memoir came out in 2016, but that something isn't J.D. Vance, it is the United States of America. Uh, Gary Guy is talking about. Um, and when you're, uh, when we um, critique these, these sort of what I'm calling auxiliaries, um, and a democratic theory has a kind of circularity to it where um, it says, well, those procedures were never truly democratic in the first place, so they aren't really uh, democratic now. They were, they were put, put in place by slaveholders and uh, uh, white males, and therefore the Constitution isn't really, uh, doesn't really have any democratic uh, credentials. Um, so this notion of truly democratic, or the idea that there's some sort of imminent sense that we can derive uh, through democratic theory, has some role in this uh, critique. But the, the, point, the real point is that uh, these critiques are, are anti-democratic in the, in the literal sense uh, by design, because the, um, if, if the goal is any particular vision of true democracy, then all of these devices, rights and whatnot, um, are obstacles to the realization of whatever uh, true democracy is. They're conservative, uh, uh, these auxiliaries, because they get in the way of any kind of transformational change by way of something like uh, collective effervescence. So this is, uh, you know, I'm going to come back to this because this turns out to be a really important part of uh, recent uh, French political thinking. Um, and in any case, they preserve this uh, uh, sort of corrupt looking politics of interest bargaining and minor. Uh, okay, enough with grubby politics and distasteful news. Let's unite around an inspiring story of a guy turning his life around. John Hinckley, he is starting his own record label. Yeah, he, he shot Ronald Reagan in 1981, but apparently he's rehabilitated and he's uh, writing songs, he's performing songs, and he's starting his own record label. I mean, how beautiful is that? Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing great. I just posted my latest single. The song is called The Places I Have Been, and it's available on Spotify and iTunes and the other streaming sites. And that makes 26 songs of mine that I have on the streaming site. So check them out when you have a chance. This is one of those 26 songs I'm going to play for you right now. You're in my dreams most every night. You're still looking fine. High up on a pedestal. I'm so glad you're mine. Life here on earth is black and white The sun's not out today I will wait until the night To wash my blues away It's so quiet in my room Peace is in the air There's no place here for gloom I'm without a care I will sleep or chance to dream Of only me and you Tomorrow is another day To show my love so true I do believe in true love ways They all 
and I are free. I do believe in true love ways. They always comfort me. Say goodbye to yesterday. You and I are free. You're in my dreams most every night. That's great. All right, guys. Good Shabbos. I will see you on Tinder.